0: Speaking of change, contemplating the fact of change and the fact of the impermanence is a big thing in the Buddhist tradition. There is a chant that I'd like to introduce to you, and its I'll do it in both the Pali language and in English, and then we can sing it together. It's a chant that is used in the monasteries of Asia um, every day as a reminder of what's going on here because it's really easy to forget that things are changing. We get our little routines going, our world together, and it seems like, oh, this is great. It'll just go on like this forever. And we kind of fool, fool ourselves. So instead of fooling ourselves, we remember, oh yeah, things are changing. Things are changing. So the word for impermanence in the Pali language is anicca, A-N-I-C-C-A. It's a Pali word. Pali is not, P. it's P-A-L-I, Pali. When I first heard it, I wrote down Pali, like, P O L L Y. But it's not that. Anyway, um, so the, the chant in the Pali language sounds like this Anicha watasankara Upada wai niruchanti De sang upasamo suko. Sweet, isn't it? (laughs) In English, it sounds like this. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. Let's sing it together. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. That's a chant you can quite easily memorize and use for yourself. So this teaching on impermanence There's so much to say about it. But let's just say some simple things. It points to the fact that change is ever-present and that we can observe how things are changing both on a very large macroscopic uh, level as well as on a very small and microscopic level. Climate change is, you know, something that we couldn't have imagined maybe even 10 years ago, that the ice caps would be melting at such a rate that we would be seeing the effects of something so dramatic happening on the planet. It's the only planet we've ever known, right? So to have it suddenly be changing under our very feet, that gets our attention So we can relate to that, we can open ourselves to that, we can take it in. It's not just a a philosophy, you know, it's not like the Buddhists believe in impermanence, it's not a belief, it's a reality. One of my favorite uh, little one-liners recently, now who said it, that's the, challenge for this mind. But let's not go there. (laughs) (laughs) Reality is that which doesn't go away when you stop believing in it. (laughs) So you might stop believing in gravity. I don't believe in gravity anymore. I'm giving up belief in gravity. Well, how's that gonna turn out? The same with impermanence. It's not like Buddhists believe in impermanence. No, we're pointing, Buddhists are pointing to an ever-present reality, which a lot of the times we are kind of asleep to. So we, it's one of those realities that's meant to wake us up. It's not meant to torture us, although it might create some disappointment in our lives, but it's meant to wake us up to say, hey, look what's happening. You were born, you are going to die. You don't have all the time in the world. Nobody does. The Buddha said, thus shall you think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom. A dream. Really? Is it like that? I recently saw this photo that some of you might have seen um, from Carl Sagan's uh, book called A Pale Blue Dot. Have you seen that photo? Please look it up on Google. Guru Google will show you this picture that was taken something like 14 billion miles from Earth of our planet. And it's mostly a black page of outer space, empty space, with the tiniest little blue dot you can imagine. (laughs) It's not how we tend to think of planet Earth, but it is in the larger scheme of things a pale blue dot. Somebody looking for it might miss it. So we live in a mysterious, a vast mysterious cosmos in which things are happening and transforming and coming and going and birthing and dying way beyond anything we can even comprehend so far. We're just still learning about where we are, what's going on in this cosmos that we inhabit. So when we see a pale blue dot and we think, oh, that's where I live, it does seem kind of like a phantom, a dream, a bubble, a mirage. One Buddhist teacher, Burmese man, Nanamoli, said, Think of impermanence this way. This is the shortest, most dramatic definition of impermanence that I have come across. He said, whatever is, will be was. (laughs) And we can look around this room and, and you know, think of everything in those terms. Everything here will one day not be here, including us, by the way. So impermanence is not just happening out here. You know, as you get older, I know many of you are not getting older, but I (laughs) discovered some five or six years ago that I am getting older. And it's quite an adjustment. It's like, wow, it does happen to everyone, even me. (laughs) So we, we can observe impermanence in the outer world, but we also can observe it much closer to home. The changes in our bodies, the changes in our, the functioning of our minds, the fact that as you get older, you do become more forgetful. You do forget things. Unless you take some super pill or something that maybe it's in the works, I don't know but it's just a common phenomenon that the things you've relied on, wow, that doesn't, I still don't remember the name of that quote, the man who said what I said. So maybe it'll come, maybe it won't. Rilke said, the knowledge of impermanence that haunts our days is their very fragrance. We are living in the fragrance of change. And as humans, of course, we try to control change. A little change is all right, but too much, not so good. We try to control what happens. We try to move it in a positive direction. That's very human of us. But in the Buddhist tradition, the encouragement is to just keep it in mind, keep it in your sights, notice the changing nature of things. And here's the, here's the, the thing that probably is the hardest, not take it personally, not take aging personally, not take forgetting personally, not taking the fact that others die personally. It's just the way it is. It's the nature of this realm of existence that everything that comes into being, everything that's born will eventually die, will eventually dissolve. So I teach often now classes for people 55 and over, and we explore our relationship to change. Because that's where practice can help us in exploring, what is my relationship to change? Here's the fact of it. It's not going to be always as I want it because things change. What is my relationship to that fact? So here are some of the questions that we explore. What is your attitude towards impermanence? Do you struggle with change? Do you fear it? Where in your life are you attached to things not changing? Where do you welcome change? Where do you enjoy change? Because it can also be that. Has your practice helped you to accept change? How? What would it mean for you to have an easier relationship with change? I say, we all need to learn how to surf. (laughs) That's my idea of having a better relationship with change. Surfers go out in the ocean. They wait patiently for the waves to come. They don't know necessarily what kind of waves they're gonna get that day. The waves come and they learn how to ride those waves. With great skill, with great, amazing. If you see any of those surfing movies, you know, the, what they can do with a wave. <laughs> it's so beautiful to watch. And you think that is artistry in motion. So it's a metaphor for how we, in terms of meeting the waves of change in our own life how can we learn to ride those waves without getting you know thrown thrown under without without killing ourselves without you know dire consequences how can we get up and, and ride another wave the next day? So this is a, a, a an invitation just to look at that whole piece for yourself. And of course our retreat that we were once looking forward to and planning for, well, the, the law of Nietzsche has crept in and is showing us that this is... We are at the end of not, we are not there yet. We have a whole other day, whole other morning. We will still be here, but it is coming to an end. So it's hard for us because of a number of things, but one of them is that we live in a consumer culture where what is emphasized the most is the freedom to do what we want when we want the freedom to pursue what we want. That is the highest value. And it is a value that the ego uses to define its worth. Am I successful? Am I making it? Am I winning? Or am I losing? Am I a failure? The ego likes to be in control, in charge. But new findings uh, in the neuroscience is finding that in terms of pursuing happiness, and we often think that happiness is equated to getting everything we want, they're finding, and this kind of corroborates what we discover in meditation anyway, and even in your creative work, does getting what you want equal happiness? Well, maybe for, you know, a little while, a few minutes or something. But then what happens? We're on to something else. We're on to wanting something else. So they're finding in neuroscience that people are not particularly good at predicting what will make them happy. Maybe they think winning the lottery, but that doesn't do it. That what makes people happy is a more... uh, often unexpected kind of uh, uh, discovery. And we'll get into that a little bit more. When have you, in this week of exploring, felt this sense of happiness come into you, this sense of well-being, or however you would describe it, what what are the moments when that has arrived for you in your being where you have felt usually i would suspect and i'll say for myself as well that usually those are moments of when i feel so fully present and so connected can't even say exactly connected to what but there's a feeling of connection and aliveness and being here that is completely fulfilling. Nothing else is, there's nothing missing in them in those kinds of moments. No need to look for something to be improved or different or, oh, but yesterday or tomorrow. Or, it's just complete. Do you, do you recognize what I'm talking about? Those kinds of moments of authenticity, and we long for those moments. David White wrote this beautiful poem. You must learn one thing the world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn. Anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. These processes that we're exploring, they bring us alive. Do they not? Would you agree with that? Is that a good thing? What does it tell you about your life? What does it say to you when you are experiencing those moments of fulfillment and aliveness and connection. Maybe it tells you you'd like more of that. Is that true? Or do you want to be a zombie? <laughs> so, the Buddha, of course, talked a lot about this search for happiness. And he found some something that is not obvious right away. But the more we look at it, the more we see the truth of it. He gave a talk on what he called the Four Noble Truths, the fact that in this world there is suffering, and we need to face up to that fact. We can't make it other than what it is, that it's not that all of life is suffering, but life is challenging. Life has within it Uh, some really hard parts, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. We will be disappointed. We will be uh, faced with difficulties. We will lose things. We will fail. We will make mistakes. We just will. So recognize that. Don't take it as something so personal that, you know, it's hard to accept. And he said the cause of our suffering is that we want things to be different than that. We don't want to live in a world where we don't get what we want. We can't make it like we want it or we feel like we're failing or that we're losing or people are not treating us right or whatever it is. We want it to be different. And so we spend a lot of time and energy trying to make it different. To make it so that it will deliver to us the satisfaction that we're looking for. Now, of course, what something I've so we've all wanted stuff, and we've all achieved much of what we wanted. I have no doubt, looking around this room, that you all are a group of achievers of people who have succeeded in many ways in your lives. But you have also are a group of people who've also experienced not getting what you wanted, of having been frustrated, having not achieved what you wanted. So here's uh, the proposition I would like to put to you that uh, what I've noticed over the years of winning and losing in my own life is that getting or not getting What we want is not the end of the story. In fact, the more interesting parts of the story happen after we get what we want. Okay, you got what you want, the prize. Whatever it is, the fortune or the person or the house or the car, you did it. And the fairy tales then say, and they lived happily ever after. I always wondered what that looked like. I didn't see it in my own family. The happily ever after part? What does that look like? So, and then of course there's the not getting what we want and feeling perhaps a sense of failure or shame. We're not good enough, unworthiness. So what does that do to us when we, when we feel like we're not achieving what we had hoped for? Do we give up? Or such experiences, and the Buddhist tradition is full of stories of such occurrences, is it seen as an opportunity? to know a deeper wisdom about life and that not getting the desired outcome does not mean the end of the story by any means. It may mean the beginning of a whole new life. There was a man, well, there is a man named Billy Mills. Do any of you know Billy Mills? So Billy Mills was a Native American, is a Native American, he's still alive, he's just an older man, probably about my age. Um, and he was an Olympic athlete. And he won the running race in, in the Olympics in Japan in the early 60s. He, did, he, he won the gold medal for America. But because of the racism of those times, hard to believe, but this is true, American newspapers would not put his picture in the newspaper. So his, even though he won a glorious little gold medal, he did not receive the recognition that usually goes with such an achievement. So later in his life, he, he ended up working to help young men become good, good athletes. And, but he wrote this later in his life. So he, we could say he had both the glory of getting you know, quite a lot of acclaim and at the same time, not the recognition he deserved. So he wrote this. He said, I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given a life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given weakness that I might learn to obey. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each minute. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing I asked for, yet all my wishes came true. So th- this is such a beautiful, to me, expression of that sense of potential that it occur- that is in each one of us to find how to transform bad fortune and make it into something of great value for ourselves and for others. So on this retreat, because we are working with ourselves and creating and seeing our wanting and our not wanting so, you know, so uh, vividly on display, you could say. We have a great opportunity in this retreat to explore the terrain beyond wanting, beyond not wanting, to surrender to the reality of the process rather than get caught by the results. There's an environmental artist named Andy Goldsworthy. Many of you know his work, where he goes out into the woods and creates art out of what he finds in the woods. And so some of his sculptures are have to do with stones, finding stones and building these beautiful kind of dome-like structures or or different structures out of stones. And so there's a movie about him and it shows him in one in one scene building this elaborate stone structure and just as he gets to the top the whole thing falls down. <laughs> And that happens a number of times, you know. And it sh- keep the camera sh- stays on his face so you see his reaction to, you know, all these hours of work, boom, falling down. Because he doesn't use any artificial cementing or nails or anything. He just works with the stones. So uh, the... One frame of the movie on his face, he he the thing falls apart, and he looks into the camera and he says, just very plainly, he says, "I have not yet understood the nature of these stones. What patience! What a beautiful description of the fidelity to the process. There's more for me to learn here," he's saying more was being asked of him. When we lose, when we fail, when we feel challenged, more is being asked of us. Don't take it personally. It's not the end of the story. In fact, it may be the beginning of a new learning which involves following a more mysterious and intuitive unfolding A deeper stream of your being. That's part of why I love this process of creating because it puts us in touch with the more mysterious and deeper streams that exist within each one of us. So I'd like to share an example which, in some ways, expresses the transformative aspect of the creative process. And it's the example of the caterpillar which transforms into a butterfly. I'd like to read you one version of this story. And I'd like to invite you that as you listen, you note what strikes you, what part of the story particularly is alive for you, what intrigues you, what provokes your curiosity. So make yourself comfortable and hear the story. When a caterpillar nears its transformation time, it begins to eat ravenously, consuming everything in sight. The caterpillar body then becomes heavy, outgrowing its own skin until it is too bloated to move. It then attaches to a branch upside down. It forms a chrysalis, an enclosing shell that limits the caterpillar's freedom for the duration of the transformation. Within the chrysalis, a miracle occurs. Tiny, tiny cells that biologists call imaginal cells begin to appear. These cells are wholly different from caterpillar cells, carrying different information, vibrating to a different frequency, the frequency of the emerging butterfly. At first, the caterpillar's immune system perceives these new cells as enemies and attacks them, but the imaginal cells are not deterred. They continue to appear in greater numbers, recognizing each other, bonding together until the new cells are numerous enough to organize into clumps. When enough cells have formed to make structures along the new organizational lines, the caterpillar's immune system is overwhelmed. The caterpillar body then becomes a nutritious soup for the growth of the butterfly. When the butterfly is ready to hatch, the chrysalis becomes transparent. The need for restriction has been outgrown. Yet the struggle toward freedom has an organic timing. Were the chrysalis open too soon, the butterfly would die. As the butterfly emerges, it opens its wings, right wing, left wing, and then flies away. What do you notice in particular? What part of this transformative process strikes you? Maybe in your life you sense the beginning of a transition or change. Maybe you are in the midst of change, but feeling lost, doubtful. Maybe you are in the dark, very disoriented, upside down, confused. Maybe you feel irrationally hopeful, like there's some little glimmer of possibility that doesn't exactly make sense, but you know it's there. Maybe you are emerging from a time of darkness, sensing an emerging peace and freedom, however it is for you for wherever you are it in, in the process, it is all part of some kind of intelligent process at work. Right? I mean, how does the caterpillar, it appears preposterous, you know, the caterpillar, how does she know when to build a chrysalis? Oh, I think I'll attach myself upside down and, you know, do all this mysterious activity. How does that happen? Somehow at the right moment, in tune with some mysterious imperative, the caterpillar does just what is needed for the process to be activated. It eats and eats and then upside down forms a chrysalis that limits the caterpillar's freedom. The caterpillar voluntarily constrains his or her freedom If it didn't, there would eventually be no butterfly. I'm sort of intrigued by this idea of constraint, forcing new possibilities to emerge. The old is over. The imaginal cells begin to form. And maybe this is somehow a metaphor for all kinds of transformation for transformative change. The old is dying and the new is coming into being. I like to think of a retreat such as this one as a kind of chrysalis, a situation of confinement. You are here without your close people to rely on. You are here in some sense alone with yourself even though we're in a room full of people and we go through the day together. But you're not in charge. Your usual habits are frustrated. You can't just have what you want when you want it. You're meeting yourself in a kind of confined space. And that provokes a process the deeper stream of your being begins to wake up not only showing you the obstacles in your psyche perhaps but what is calling you what is calling you I love that question what is in you that wants to be known, that goes beyond your conventional roles of parent, child, spouse, boss, employee, worker, all those conventional roles that we know and we play, but what else is in there that is wanting to be known, wanting to express itself? This begins to show itself when we give ourselves time and space. Not just what we want and what we don't want, but something deeper, something of another nature, you could say. So I thought I'd tell you a story that, uh, of something that called me at an early age. I, I think it started when I was nine or ten, maybe eleven, I, we, our family wasn't particularly religious, but we would go to the Presbyterian Church. It was a very nice church. I wanted to speak to God. I had this aspiration as a nine-year-old because I'd read in the Bible, I'd gone to the Bible study classes and they talked about God revealing himself and talking to people and I thought, wow. Wow bring it on that's for me you know i'd like to you know see what that see what that experience would be like to talk to god i felt it was possible so i would sit in church with my mother she she went to church primarily cuz she loved to sing She had been an opera singer and then given it up when she married my dad. So she would go, I'm pretty sure, just to sing the hymns. But nevertheless, we would sit there and she'd be singing away and I'd be looking at the stained glass windows and praying that God would reveal himself to me. Well, nothing happened. It was a, you know, nothing I didn't hear one word. (laughs) It was just an empty silence. So I began to question the Bible itself, and I went to the minister. Maybe I was 10 or 11 by then. I made an appointment to see the minister. (laughs) Can you imagine? And I went in there and I said, I need to know who wrote the Bible. Because I, I don't, I'm wondering if somebody just made it all up or if it's real. I really wanted to know. He did not like that question. <laughs> and he didn't have any very good answers for me either. So I began to, you know, really lose faith. And then maybe that summer, I was, uh, my parents sent, my sister and I, to a music and arts camp in New Hampshire. And by chance, that summer, they were planning a production of Maxwell Anderson's St. Joan. And guess who got cast as St. Joan? Moi. I was cast as St. Joan, not knowing anything about her. But synchronistically, I discovered that she talked to God all the time. (laughs) She had a direct line. And she had been a real person. It wasn't a story. It was She had been a real person and she talked to God and I got encouraged by that. It was like, okay, maybe if she could do it, it's possible. But then, of course, she didn't have the happiest outcome. LAUGHTER that was a bit discouraging. You know? Yes, you can talk to God, but it evidently is a very dangerous thing to do, <laughs> especially if you, you know, aren't a bishop in the church and you know you're just a common woman. So I, 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 I got it. Got very complicated after that. You know, I kind of gave up. It didn't seem like there was a way forward for me. So I stopped praying. I stopped going to church. I pretty much stopped wondering anything about God. And I turned my attention (laughs) in other directions, mostly towards boys. I began another kind of life. So many years passed, many, many years, and I... It wasn't until the 1960s when I was, uh, I was at Columbia University during those days. They were tumultuous, exciting, amazing days of student unrest and political protest and occupying buildings, <laughs> staying up all night and occasionally indulging in psychedelics. And it, it was quite a time. And that began to shift something in me where I thought, oh, there is something to be found, but it's not outside of myself. It's not a god in the heavens. There's something that's going on in all this fervent activity among the 60s crowd that was a, more about a shift in consciousness. And then there were, was an influx of Eastern teachers I went to a yoga class, I met Zen teachers, I met Tibetan lamas. Everywhere I went, I seemed to bump into them. And little by little, there was an impact. And that same curiosity about God and talking to God that had been so important for me as a young child kind of resurfaced. And I felt this sense of possibility. Oh, there is something here to be discovered. There is something to find. So I experimented with some different Zen retreats and Tibetan empowerments. They were wonderful, but there was so much mystery in them I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. And it wasn't until I heard Joseph Goldstein, who was close to my age, a Westerner who could speak good English and explain things, and I heard him give a talk on the Four Noble Truths, and I heard the teaching that the Buddha said, come see for yourself if what I say is true, that you don't have to believe in something. You don't have to believe somebody just because they tell you something. You can find out for yourself. And that created a sense of access that I felt curious and really just very motivated to pursue that as a path of inquiry and as a path of discovery. And so I did. And never dreamt of any of 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 this. Couldn't have imagined it. But here we are. So um, I felt, now in looking back on all this, I can say to myself, you know what, Rilke was right about living with these questions. You know that I'm going to read to you what Rilke said. You may have heard this before. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live with the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. I feel the truth of that in my own experience of this search that I was on. Retreats, the discipline of creative work, the holding of a deep question, any of these and all of these create a kind of chrysalis, of conditions that work on us, whether we're conscious of it or not. They work on us and help these imaginal cells of a new way of being and seeing emerge. Perhaps the process of dying and death itself is another kind of chrysalis which awaits all of us at a certain point. Everything that is born will die And sometimes I find myself wondering at the age of 79, just as a woman wonders how she's going to give birth, how is this going to happen? This child is going to be born, but how it will work, we don't know until until it's happening. In the same way, I wonder about the process of dying, What will it be like? But people have been dying for millions of years just as caterpillars have been turning into butterflies. That's reassuring to me. I don't have to figure out how to do it. It's a natural unfolding process of deep transformation. Of that, I am sure. The body knows how to be born and the body knows how to die. And being a conscious participant in the process is our task. Not to be afraid. Not to resist when the moment of transformation comes. But to open to the wonder and mystery of it. So Thich Nhat Hanh, I'll end with Thich Han telling us some things about birth and death that I think are helpful because they sound so true. So Thich Han said, scientists have already pronounced that there is no birth and no death. There is only transformation. So transformation is possible, is real, and birth and death are just ideas Birth and death are only transformation. It's like a wave who believes that she is subject to birth and death. Every time the wave comes up and then begins to go down, she's afraid of dying. But if the wave realizes that she is water, she's no longer afraid. Before going up, she is water. Before going down, she is water. And after going down, she continues to be water. There is no death. So it's very important that the wave does some meditation and realize that she is a wave. (laughs) And And she is at the same time water. And when she knows she is water, she is no longer afraid of dying. She feels wonderful going up. She feels wonderful going down. She has become free from fear. So transformation is something that we are in. We're part of it. We're life transforming itself moment to moment, year to year, birth to death. And the creative process is a way we can participate more consciously in all ways of transformation. So I hope this has been somewhat provocative or helpful to you. Let's sit together for just a minute.